Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The same thing happened in Britain and America. The mutiny in Britain was Brexit and the Red Wall. The mutiny in America was obviously Trump. And we have paid a heavy price um, for just letting those divergences rip. Because now we're gonna to have to do something about it. That's the whole leveling up agenda. But it's going to be much, much harder to heal these rifts now than it would have been to avoid them in the first place. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Alice Denby, Deputy Editor of CapEx. The future of capitalism is a stark account of societies being torn apart, regions rebelling against cities, the working class against the elite and the young against the old. For its author, Sir Paul Collier, one of the world's leading development economists, the system simply isn't working. We need pragmatic and ethical solutions. Unfortunately, he has a few suggestions. He joined me in front of a live, well, a Zoom audience, for a fascinating conversation that ranged from 19th century Bradford to his own experiences growing up in post-war Sheffield to the morality of modern media influences. everyone. Thank you for joining me. I'm Alice Denby, Deputy Editor of CapEx, and I'm delighted and honoured to be joined this evening by one of the UK's most distinguished economists. He's Professor of Economics and Government at the Oxford Blavatnik School of Government, um, Sir Paul Collier. Sir Paul, welcome to CapEx. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to have you. Um, so we're here this evening to talk about your book, The Future of Capitalism. Um, and CapEx readers, uh, I'm sure, will agree that capitalism is the only proven way of generating mass prosperity. But your book also gives an account of how it's created these forces and anxieties that are sort of ripping society apart um, and creating these deep, deep divisions. Um, so I thought we might start, if, if you would like, by just kind of painting a picture of this crisis as you see it. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um... I believe in capitalism, as you say, it's the only system that's uh, um, proved capable of um, lifting um, the mass of people out of poverty into prosperity. Um, and it's the first time in thousands of years of human civilization um, that we hit on it. it. Happened in Britain, happened in Northern Britain, 10 miles from where I was born, Sheffield. 
and um, uh, and it was a miracle um, of, um, of of uh, of bringing together um, ideas, um, the drive of uh, decentralized uh, private enterprise, and the finance to fuel those ideas into into firms. So it's a marvelous thing, but. Um, I don't believe for the moment that capitalism works on autopilot. I think the idea that um, uh, the markets will automatically keep everything um, in happy land is, is just uh, is completely intellectually untenable. Um, periodically, not that frequently, but periodically capitalism derails. And then when it derails, you need active public policy to put it back on the rails. Um, uh, in my reckoning, there's been three major derailments. Uh, everybody knows about number two, which was mass unemployment in the 30s and uh, how we got out of it. Um, uh, uh, the first derailment is a bit less well known because it's a long time ago now, and that was in the 1840s. Um, and it happened again in the, the North of England, because they were the first industrial cities. Um, and the, the most booming city in the whole of uh, Europe was, was Bradford. And so my German grandfather left an impoverished German village um, where his dad was a grave digger and moved to, 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 to Bradford. And uh, like thousands and thousands of other people. So they were very productive in Bradford but it was a catastrophic place because there was no active public policy um, to keep people um, healthy in these newly crowded and unsanitary conditions. And so life expectancy in the Northern cities by the 1840s had fallen to just 19 years. So on average, you were dead by 19. Huh? Um, and that produced a crisis. Um, so one of the vignettes I like to tell is um, Bradford in 1849, when uh, cholera struck and there was a Mester Big. Mester Big was the big industrialist in Bradford, the Titus Salt. He was also politically Mester Big. He was the mayor and he was the city's one MP. So, you know, the buck stopped with Titus Salt. Um, but he recognized that it stopped there. It seems to be a sort of searing moment in his life. Um, because he gave away his entire fortune. He created the first purpose-built, decent industrial town in the world, which was Saltaire, now a World Heritage Centre. Um, and he gave the rest of his fortune to clean up Bradford. Nobody knew what was causing cholera, but he had a good sense that a clean city with parks and so on would make things a lot better. Um, now, that was, to my mind, responsible capitalism. He felt a... Uh, loyalty to his workforce and to his citizens, and he did something about it. And in return, what they gave him was loyalty and honor. So when he died, he had a huge funeral. There's statues, it's still fundamentally working. Right? Um, so that was responsible capitalism. Um, but we roll on to the 1980s, and by then, we'd got another derailment very different. It wasn't a health derailment, it wasn't a mass unemployment derailment. It was two divergences opening up in our society. One 
was a spatial divergence, which reversed 200 years of spatial convergence. So 200 years until 1980, the poorer places in Britain were catching up with the richer. And from 1980 onwards, it's gone into reverse. Um, the metropole, London, started to just pull away and become hyper-prosperous, whereas towns like I grew up in Sheffield collapsed, they imploded. You, you're probably just too young to have ever have seen The Full Monty, but The Full Monty was a wonderful film, which most of your audience will have watched, and it was very poignant um, because it was a tragedy. It was a comedy tragedy. Um, people just forget that was Sheffield, and that was my relatives. Right? So that was one divergence, a new divergence between successful places and broken places, successful metropoles and broken places. And the other divergence was an educational divergence. Um, and again, by chance, I happened to straddle that. My parents both left school when they were 12, so I was first generation educated. I've now got education coming out of my ears, right? I have chairs at Harvard, Oxford, and Paris, so, you know. Um, Etc. Um, so I now live in the overspill, the luxury overspill for London, which is called North Oxford, um, which has the highest ratio of house prices to income in the whole country. Um, but Sheffield, um, the, my relatives, my less educated relatives, were left behind. They, they start their, they lost their manual jobs. So the value of manual jobs fell, whereas the, man, the value of the sort of education I had went up and up and up. And so these are the two divergences, which started, both started around 1980. But the peculiarity is that unlike the 1840s, unlike the 1930s, this time nothing was done about it. These divergences got wider and wider for 40 years, and so you end up with mutinies. The same thing happened in Britain and America. The mutiny in Britain was Brexit and the Red Wall. The mutiny in America was obviously Trump. And we have paid a heavy price um, for just letting those divergences rip, because now, we're going to have to do something about it. That's the whole leveling up agenda. But it's going to be much, much harder to heal these rifts now than it would have been to avoid them in the first place. And of course, since you wrote this book, it's published in, I think, 2018, we've had coronavirus. Um, how do you think that has changed or exacerbated or has it perhaps in some way helped the situation? Have people rediscovered a kind of communitarian spirit or has it made things worse? Yeah, I think very much. It's, it's, um, what it's done is amplified. And so the societies which became highly individualistic and unequal, most obviously America, um, then the, the COVID epidemic just exacerbated that. Um, the, Societies which were already um, pretty um, communitarian. Um, let me give you an example, Denmark. Denmark's a very, very successful um, market economy and more successful than ours. Yeah? Yeah. They're higher per capita income than we are. 
um, they top uh, pretty well every index for well-being in the world. Um, um, but they used to, and the way they succeeded is they used to coming together as a community um, to, for everybody to agree on common purposes and everybody take moral responsibility, both in firms and in families. And so along came COVID and it was obvious to Danes, well, they better um, protect people. So, you know, um, behave responsibly so that you don't infect your neighbor. Um, now, because everybody behaved responsibly, they didn't get a first wave of coronavirus. And so they were able to keep their economy open. So not only did they have the lowest mortality in Europe, they had the lowest economic hit in Europe. Um, they didn't get a second wave either. They briefly got a third wave in December, they've already got rid of it. So that's successful um, approach where everybody recognizes, here's a new purpose. Um, just, it's not a complicated purpose. Avoid infecting your neighbors. If you're old like me, stay out of the way. Um, if you're young like you, get on with your lives, but make sure that your kids um, don't kill granny. Right? I mean, it's not complicated stuff. Um, the Danes did that very easily. And if we look at America, which had for 40 years been just continuously infected by this um, individualism, this model of my, my rights and, um, uh, and my self-interest. So it's both coming from both the economic right, um, my only duty is to maximize my own self-interest, um, and from the uh, political left, my individual rights are all that matters. And what happened when we got COVID, um, my endearing memory from this year, exactly this time last year, was long queues outside gun shops. That's what people did in America in response to COVID. Less protect your neighbor than shoot your neighbor. And shoot your neighbor doesn't work very well as a protective strategy. Um, but those are the divergences. So the same disease, COVID, in two economically successful societies, but one which was already used to pulling together, pulled further together. One which was already bitterly divided by these cleavages that I described, the geographic cleavage, the educational cleavage, has just pulled further apart. Um, and now it's 50-50 divided, and um, it's going to be very hard to get any common purposes in America because they are so polarized and full of hatreds. And do you think, so I think what you're saying is that in Britain, the kind of political divide we had, the fact that we've been quite a sort of divided country over Brexit has made us more vulnerable to the pandemic? It could have gone either way. And initially, um, but um, we, we're not America. We're really not America. Um, um, the, um, the, the, neither, neither the philosophy of the right nor the philosophy of the left really uh, had enough traction to do that. So on the, on the right, Boris Johnson um, 
you know, describe himself as a Brexit he has her. Um, um, uh, he's really not um, uh, an ardent Thatcherite, right? Uh, he just isn't, right? Um, uh, and so he recognized that the government had responsibilities to, uh, to help people. Um, and, um, and he made some bad initial mistakes, but people have forgiven that because we were all in the dark. Nobody knew what to do. Um, but then what has been a triumph is this decentralized um, discovery and distribution of vaccines. Um, and the use of a lot of volunteers. It's actually quite moving. You're probably too young to have had a vaccine yet, but um, I and my wife both got vaccinated um, and we both um, found it a very moving experience. My wife grew up in Italy and is Dutch, um, but she'd just taken out British citizenship and she found it very, very moving to see all these lines of volunteers organizing things, giving jabs. My, you know, my, um, my secretary's son trained on, um, uh, on YouTube how to give jabs. And there he is in a pharmacy working on Sunday on his day off to give, you know, I mean, this is just fantastic. These are the, um, the bedrocks of um, uh, a moral purpose, both in the private sector where AstraZeneca and Oxford both independent organizations formed a collaboration around a common purpose and did magnificently. And, and ordinary people just saying, I want to be part of the solution to this. Right? And so um, the, both, the, 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 both the extreme right and the extreme left have been too um, small to be able to counter that. And I, mean, I noticed that both uh, David, 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 David Davis and Jeremy Corbyn's brother are united in thinking that they, there is a human right um, to be able to infect other people if you want to, um, uh, but, um, but they're in a pretty small minority, I think. You talk in your book about the sort of post-war period of 1945 to 1970 as a period where capitalism was working well. People were kind of pulling together and they were um, getting more prosperous. And it seems to me that the pandemic could be a sort of 1940, a World War II style event, or it could in fact go the opposite way. There are some ways in which it could really exacerbate divisions between people who, for example, those people who work with their hands, who've continued to, to work throughout the pandemic, who've been more vulnerable, while those in white collar jobs can work at home. Or it could kind of go the other way. People have been working at home, they've been reconnecting more with their local communities, the cities are emptied out. Um, what do you think? Do, if you had to bet on it going one way or another? I think it's going, going the right way. Um, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's never a certainty. Right? Um, um, the, the idea that rich economies just stay rich um, is, is, to my mind, dangerous complacency. Um, um, but I think um, in Britain, uh, it really has struck a chord and the fact that we've been so successful with the vaccine um, by this act of pulling together is very hopeful. I think the danger 
is that, I mean, if we literally went back to 1945, if we started believing that what we needed was centralized control and direction, please no, please no. Huh? Tried, failed reliably everywhere. Um, the genius of capitalism is decentralized, um, flexible competition and, co and collaboration, a lot of collaboration in capitalism. Um, very healthy collaboration, like you know, AstraZeneca, University of Oxford is, is, is a collaboration. Um, so flexible collaboration around a common purpose. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you one little tale, which I think is quite encouraging. Um, um, uh, as, as happened in many people, um, their kids bought them um, the, the future of capitalism in paperback and gave it to them on Christmas Day. Um, and so um, this guy um, who was um, running one of Britain's really big companies um, uh, got this book and because his son had given it to him, he felt obliged to at least appear to read it. And then he sort of got hooked. And then he got worried. He got really worried because he thought if this is if this guy's right, I'm running this company all wrong. It's not good for the company and I am morally tainted. Um, and he didn't know what to do, but what he did do was buy a load of copies of the book and give them to all the directors of the company. And he said, um, read it, see what you think. And then they had a board meeting and they decided, oh my God, we think he's right. Um, very inconvenient. But then they decided, okay, COVID's just hitting. Let's work through the suggestions in the future of capitalism, apply them in our company. And so they did. Um, uh, that went on for six months. And then, then the guy thought, if I'd written a book which had changed one of Britain's biggest companies so fundamentally, I'm not like to know. And that's why I'm Zooming you to tell you. <laughs> um, I was just in touch with him again today because he also volunteered and said, you know, because we're a very big employer, there's a lot that we can now do in communities to help. Um, so I, I won't reveal what company it is, but it's turned on a dime. Um, and that, that application, in a way, because it was this COVID crisis, they knew they got a choice. They either behaved as opportunist scoundrels to their employees, which some companies have done, or they chose this opportunity um, to build loyalty in their employees. Um, I've had Britain's biggest headhunting firm um, uh, working with me because they've realized um, in previous years, we've been hunting the wrong heads. Um, we don't want, as chief executives, people who are super smart, super greedy, super hungry, because they wreck these companies. Um, we need um, uh, chief executives who can actually communicate with their, with their workforce and build some common purpose. One of the nice little vignettes in the book is how um, uh, 
uh, Toyota, this ridiculous little upstart in Japan, managed to um, outcompete General Motors so thoroughly that General Motors, which started this contest as the most profitable company that ever existed, ended in 2009 bankrupt. And everybody knows what bankrupted it. It was Toyota. And everybody knows how. It was because Toyota had built good enough relations with its workforce to produce fault-free cars, and General Motors could not do that because their employees hated them for good reason. I wanted to draw out some of the um, some of the other themes in your book because it's a short book, but it covers a lot of uh, well, it's got a lot of ideas in it. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was this idea of the ethical family. And, and I think some of your own kind of personal experiences really informed your ideas about that. Perhaps you could tell some of our viewers about that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Well, I think um, I talk about ethical firms, ethical families, ethical governments. Um, But yes, um, all of these entities have got to be morally load-bearing. And so um, families of course, often are morally load-bearing. Um, but their best families are huge, very powerful networks of support that sustain people um, through difficult times. Um, and, um, and, and, and we've, we, our public policy has really done a terrible job in supporting families, I think. Um, uh, so, I was, I was just a, an instance of this, and I, as I sort of mentioned, I, well, my family was a dramatic um, example of, of divergence. Um, and uh, so it starts with a little picture, um, which, uh, which is rather sweet. Um, you don't get many pictures like that in an economics book. Um, but who is it? It's two little kids aged about four. Um, they were born on the same day, 
Um, and they were cousins. And one is me, and one is my cousin Sue. And uh, um, you know, we were both um, in very similar social situations. I'd say my parents left school at 12, I mean, hers did. Um, but they were both, we both had very good parents. Um, and then her father died when, in 1963 when she was 14. Um, you're again too young to know the Philip Larkin poem that uh, sexual intercourse began in 1963. And Larkin laments that it was just too late for him. Um, and it was definitely too soon for me. It was too soon for Sue as well, but um, with her father dying, who'd been rather authoritarian, she went off the rails. Um, and despite a lot of efforts, she never managed to get back on the rails. So she was a teenage mother. Her two daughters became teenage mothers. And that cycle threatened to just go on and on into a third generation, at which point um, uh, social services in their infinite um, lack of wisdom and very considerable brutality um, removed two of the children from one of my nieces. And, um, uh, and, and we then intervened to, to take them on. Um, and it's been the best thing we've ever done. Um, uh, it's been a marvelous, exhilarating human experience. Um, but my God, um, uh, the idea that um, by taking children into something called care, you improve their lives is you know, care in this context is an Orwellian usage, right? Um, we've got 80,000 children removed into care, and we've got old people removed against their will from their homes. Um, that happened to my mother. Um, uh, whilst I was away in Africa, she was um, removed uh, with her husband, my dad, um, uh, on a Friday, um, when they'd safely lived in the same home for nearly 50 years, um, they were removed um, because um, the social workers called on them um, in the morning and they were not yet up. And the social workers thought that they ought to be up. Um, wasn't clear why they thought they ought to be up, but then they thought, oh dear, if an accident happens over the weekend, we will be legally liable, but we don't work weekends. So they took them out of the house, bundled them in a car, took them to a uh, nursing home, um, and, uh, and uh, within three days, my mother had fallen out of the bed in this strange place, and she was dead. So she managed to survive 50 years safely in her own home, um, but thanks to being the care of a, um, of a social worker, she was dead within three days. Right? So um, this is the sort of ghastly abuses of family rights. It's called um, human rights. 
uh, you know, uh, the, it, or the rights of the child. It's nothing to do with the rights of the child that 80,000 children are in care. It's about the right of um, public employees um, uh, to override the rights of families. So that sort of behavior is just disgraceful. And we're very glad we broke it. Um, uh, when we were visited by social workers, when we first took on our kids, um, they could smell that they were social workers. They went and hid under my desk because they were terrified that they would want to be taken away. So, sorry, that's a detour into the appalling um, into abuse of families in public policy. Um, uh, as you see, it's a very personal thing because I've gained two children and lost my mother as a result of these sort of behaviors. Um, but yes, we were morally low-bearing. We recognized a, a responsibility and we stepped up to it. It was fascinating that all our English friends um, said words of the equivalent of very bold minister. Um, um, and uh, because I work a lot on Africa and so did my wife, we've got loads of African friends. And all our African friends were of course the successful people who were just um, awash with, uh, with, with, the relative, with the children of relatives, just shrugged and said, well, of course, of course. What else would you do? Um, and so um, the ethical standards of families um, used to be much higher in Britain than they are, are much higher in Africa. Um, and um, hopefully we'll turn around now. Hopefully we've got to such an extreme uh, situation where we've got these 80,000 kids awash in temporary care, and it's, it's a disgrace. It seems to me like the idea of the ethical family is almost a sort of Burkean concept, you know, the little platoon, and, and if you have strong families from that, you can kind of get a strong state. Um, and you do talk about the importance of patriotism in your book, um, and the idea that patriotism can help create a sort of unified identity. But I suppose, I was thinking about that in the context of this recent um, leaked Labour document saying that Labour needed to, you know, drape itself in the union flag and assert patriotic values. And a lot of people on the left were kind of appalled by that idea. So can patriotism be a divisive concept as well as a unifying one? Um, I think nationalism can be a divisive concept, as it has been in Scotland. Um, uh, I think patriotism um, the evidence from how people react to the word is very different. It's actually um, a, uh, a word that people warm to um, pretty, well, pretty well across the political spectrum, you know, except for this noisy little gang um, that we don't need to pay much attention to, I think. Um, uh, so um, the need to build common purposes is the essence of a, of a successful society. That's what we learned with COVID. Right? And we keep learning it again and again. You, you need all sorts of coming together around common purposes, both at the national level, at the local level, at the level of a firm. That's what Toyota did and uh, General Motors couldn't do. So an ability to come together around common purposes 
um, is a sort of elementary asset of a successful society. And I like your link back to Burke and the little platoons, because what's happened over the last 40 years is that you sort of shredded the structure of society into um, just individuals who have interests and rights uh, and a state uh, which is there to meet obligations and nothing else. And that structure can't possibly work. The state is so overloaded that it's bound to fail. Um, and humans are not, it have not evolved to be uh, you know, sort of greedy, lazy, and selfish at all. We're, we're a, we are a mammal, and so if we're in, dragged down to the worst sort of environments, we behave like other mammals. But um, we're a very, very unusual sort of mammal. mammal. We've evolved to be uniquely pro-social, um, to work, to bond into groups, to care about people in groups. And the same process can build very large groups, which is what happens with a big firm or a, or a nation. Um, and that then produces a structure in which everybody in the society is morally load-bearing. Um, um, it's uh, Michael Sandel, whose wonderful new book, The Tyranny of Merit, is well worth you talking about if you haven't done so already. Um, he's got this concept of contributive justice. And what he means by contributive justice is everybody should be morally low-bearing, able to contribute and willing to contribute to the whole, whether it's in a firm, whether it's in a family, whether it's in a, a community, whether it's in a nation. Um, and so that willingness to contribute to the whole. But of course, to do, to, for that to happen, everybody's got to be in a position to be able to contribute. And that's where we failed. Um, uh, New Labour completely misunderstood that. They thought just by putting the North of England on the benefit street, that's all you needed to do. That was a denial of the agency that's intrinsic to contributing to common purpose. People get dignity from that act of contributing. Um, and so that's what needs to be restored, the capacity of people everywhere to be able to contribute. That's the levelling up agenda. It's basically bringing, making everybody equipped with skills and living in places where there are opportunities to earn a decent living so that then you can contribute to the whole. Sometimes that contribution is at the local level, sometimes at the national level. Um, but the idea that we can function with um, one half of the country um, being hyperproductive and another half of the country being very unproductive, but just being fed by handouts from the productive um, is, is neither a viable um, nor, a, nor an ethical um, uh, position. I'm going to move on in a second to audience questions because we've got quite a few coming in, but I suppose I wanted to, um, as my final question, you know, we've talked quite a lot about your sort of diagnosis of the problems facing capitalism, but your book has also offers a lot of pragmatic solutions. If you had to pick one of the sort of policy changes um, that you advocate for in your book, which would it be? So I think we 
we need to, yeah, I'll, I'll pick one, which will be devolved governments. Um, I think, you know, Britain is ludicrously centralized, both in government and in finance. We've got two towering assets in Britain. If we look ahead, what would make Brexit really successful? And those two assets, we've got the top universities in the world, we've got 18 universities in the top 100. Right? The European Union has six for 500 mil million people. We've got 18 for 60 million. Right? Um, so we've got fantastic research universities that are producing ideas. We've got this extremely deep capital market um, which is the fuel for those ideas. Yeah. The universities are generating the sparks and that should be connected to the fuel. The sparks ignite the fuel and then the firms grow. Right? And that is at the moment, it used to happen. That's why we had the industrial revolution. Right? Um, those pipes that used to link finance to enterprise and innovation and ideas are broken except in London and the Southeast. Two thirds of all venture capital, the small firms, the stuff that takes them from startups to big firms, two thirds of it goes to the Southeast. Why? Because a whole finance industry is now centered um, in London. It didn't used to be. It was centralized by the Bank of England um, in about 1900. Yeah. Um, so, what we need is to restore those links. We've got enterprise innovation around the country, and we need to get the, both, the, both the power of agency at the community level, which is devolved government. We have the most centralized government in the OECD, absurdly, and decentralized finance. We need to relocalize uh, that venture capital finance. Um, and that, is a doable agenda, that is really um, the levelling up agenda. And as we do that, we will build this um, uh, contributive justice in which everybody in our society lives in a place uh, and has the skills uh, which enables them to, to, to perform. Okay, so we're going to turn to some questions from the audiences. Um, so we've got one here from Ted Truscott. He says, I'd love to hear what the lessons are for, for developing countries. Um, perhaps thinking through one, any particular country that you think could perhaps benefit from some of these ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a good question. I'm indeed uh, hard at work writing a book which sort of applies the ideas of the future of capitalism um, to, to the poorest countries. Um, but it's basically the same point I've just made because the, the, the problems for the poor, poorest countries are very similar to the problems of the broken regions uh, in Britain. That is to say, we need to reconnect to provide startup finance um, for all the entrepreneurship, the youthful ideas. Now, Africa abounds in. Um, Entrepreneur, young entrepreneurs, right? Um, right across Africa. And the trouble is at the moment, it's very hard to get 
an idea turned into a company. Um, uh, and um, the alternative is what do people who are entrepreneurial do in a poor country? There are plenty of entrepreneurs and they recruit young, young people to go and work for them. Um, and then they face a choice. Either try and do something that is productive or try and do something which is predatory. That's always the choice. Do you run a predatory gang or do you run a productive business? And at the moment, in a lot of Africa, the answer is um, the opportunities to scale up a business, get a business going, are so few on the ground that you go into the predatory gang, which of course then further damages uh, the society. So um, what we need is a lot of um, money going into um, that sort of venture capital stuff. And the, the agencies that can do that are the development finance institutions. Britain, we've got one of the best in the world, which is CDC, the old Commonwealth Development Corporation. Um, we can be very proud of it. Um, it's got a very fine network in Africa and it's doing very, very well. Um, so scaling that um, is, and connecting that into deep capital markets, that's the way I think to go. Um, we need to do it because we're awash with liquidity. Um, and uh, that's why interest rates have fallen so very, very low. To get interest rates back up, we need to reconnect these deep pools of capital with opportunity. This kind of brings me on to the next question, which is from an anonymous, it's sort of the flip side of that is, uh, is immigration. Obviously people um, leaving developing countries to seek opportunities elsewhere. Um, and this questioner wants to know if you think that immigration has kind of undermined the social fabric of societies. Um, I think, uh, I think uh, it, it has, the, um, it needn't have done, but it certainly has in, in, in the most obvious respect is that um, uh, firms in Britain um, found they didn't need to train. Um, and so our training programs um, collapsed really. Um, we were never very good at training, the apprenticeships and so on, um, but we've now had this completely extraordinary collapse um, in the training, in vocational training, um, uh, to a completely astonishing degree. So when you do any surveys on problems for firms, shortage of people equipped with skills is, 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 is very high on the list. Um, uh, because now the European workers are tending to go back home. Um, and that leaves us with these acute skill shortages. Um, uh, and clearly, um, we should never have allowed uh, vocational training to collapse. We're at last now starting to address that problem, um, uh, which is really part of the leveling up process, um, addressing the skills deficit. But clearly, the, that, um, uh, that link from um, firms being able to recruit uh, foreign skilled workers and therefore finding it a waste of money to invest 
um, in training um, British youth. That was the tragedy. And if you contrast that with what's happened, say, in, in Germany or, 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 or for that matter in France, or the best in Europe is Switzerland. Switzerland has got a deep process of training. Like Switzerland is not um, uh, North Korea, right? Um, it's much more prosperous market economy than we are. Um, but it's built uh, very strong links um, between local firms and local training. Half of the money for the three and four year courses that 60% of Swiss kids do, half of that money is paid for by firms. And because it's so expensive, they make damn sure that Swiss youth comes out really, really employable. Um, and so they are. Patricia Rawlings asks, your view on China, millions out of poverty versus challenges to democracy. Um, yeah, um, millions have been lifted out of poverty. Um, it's interesting to look at the process by which they were lifted out. And this is the remarkable story of Deng Xiaoping, um, who uh, was not from the uh, the, the, the Beijing elite. He wasn't from Beijing. He was a provincial boy. Uh, he always had an accent throughout his life. And, um, uh, and when he took over, he went to see Singapore. And what he, he was astounded by what he saw in Singapore. And Deng was a pragmatist. He thought, Let's try it. Let's see if it can work. Um, and that was, that was Shanghai, yeah? an experiment. And then he got a bit bolder and decided we will set. So this is, this is what happened for 40 years in China until Xi. Um, so for 40 years, um, Deng, would organize, Deng and his successors would organize people to say, let's set some common purpose, set by the Communist Party, not that it's at all communist, uh, it's just a, a, a one-state party, you know, a one-party state. Um, and so it set some purpose with a four or five-year horizon, like let's get um, child mortality down, or let's get um, uh, skills up, or some, some purpose. And then it, the key step, he took was to say, and we don't know how to do it. There's a purpose. Huh? We don't know how to do it. Well, we'd better find out um, by experimenting. And so he sent young cadres of the communist elite to the regions and said, you're in charge of this region for the next four or five years. Here's what you've got to achieve. You try something and we'll monitor you. If you don't try anything in six months, the first six months, you've failed, we'll recall you, right? You've got to try something. Um, and then it created a system where they evaluated everybody and they said, ah, over here it's working, over here it's failing. It may be because here where it's working is really a bit odd, a bit unusual. But you are running something that's failing, go and have a look at that. See if they're right, what they're doing works with you or not. Right? 
They just kept running that for 40 years. Set a common purpose, admit you don't know, decentralized process of trying to discover how to do it. So it was a very decentralized system. It was the antithesis of Britain's highly centralized, overconfident, we know how to do it. Right? Um, it was experiment, it was pragmatic experiment. Now, of course, that has been turned on its head by Sheen, who's decided to centralize. Um, and that's produced a, a too powerful state. Right? Um, I think that um, during that period, about 40 years of decentralized pragmatic experiment, um, uh, frankly, the benefits in lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in a way that was completely without historical precedent was, was, a, was a triumph. Um, what typically happens as people get more prosperous is they start to demand more rights. Um, and they start to demand more voice and agency. Um, and I think that that is what was starting to happen uh, in China. And I think in many ways, she is a, is a, a retreat into a hardline approach of suppression. Um, um, and that will quite possibly um, you know, kill the goose. Um, of this decentralized uh, dynamism. Um, uh, but the decentralized dynamism um, uh, was a, the, the economic miracle you'd expect with decentralized dynamism, um, but also was this surprisingly good at this state level sense of here's building, here's a common purpose, you find out how to do it. Um, that's what we need, some decentralization, some devolution. That kind of leads me on to uh, Tom Cockerty's question. Um, he asks if you see politicians, uh, if, if you see any politicians discussing these like, principles of communitarianism, or is it always just for politicians a question of the size of the state? Oh, no, I think um, um, uh, we haven't got time to cover this, but I do believe that there's a an extraordinary um, intellectual inflection point um, away from um, individualism and towards a sense of community. Um, it's quite amazing. I mean, it's, it's across a load of different subjects. In, um, in, in business economics, um, uh, the, where was the holy grail of um, selfish um, profit maximizing, it was Chicago. Well, uh, Chicago Business School, um, the top professor there, uh, Raghu Rajan, um, came out with this wonderful book last year, The Third Pillar. And what is the third pillar of a good society? Community. And he thinks it's because we've neglected community that we've got these big divergences. No? So that's in the business community, reinforced this year by Rebecca Henderson, the top professor in a business school at Harvard, um, reimagining capitalism in a world on fire. They're both saying, we've got to go back to responsible capitalism. Capitalism has to be morally low-bearing, has to engage with the community seriously, not just in these sort of ridiculous ESG measures, but, in, but seriously. They have to mean it. Um, and I like our chief executive who 
read the future of capitalism, was horrified and changed, you know. Um, so um, that's, the, that's on the economic front. On the political science front, there's this wonderful book called The Upswing by Robert Putnam, the top political sociology professor in the world at Harvard. Um, and The Upswing is the story of America um, over the last 140 years. And he points out that in 1900, America looked just about as horrid as it did in the year 2000. Um, rampant, greedy individualism. Um, but the upswing is a study that actually communitarianism got built between 1900 and the 1960s. Um, uh, and then um, the society turned and became uh, individualistic. Um, as I say, driven by forces both on the economic right and the political left. Um, and, uh, and we're now, by 2000, we were back at 1900. Unfortunately, the last 20 years in America, there's been a very severe plunge. We plunged into uh, unfathomed depths of individualism. Um, hence the polarization, the unprecedented polarization in America. So there's, there's, wherever you look, I've mentioned Michael Sandel's The Tyranny of Marriage and Philosophy. Wherever you look, there's a wonderful evolutionary biology book um, by Joe Heinrich, uh, head of the Department of Evolutionary Biology at uh, Harvard, which is a superb book called The Weirdest People in the World. It is an immense um, intellectual achievement. Um, so wherever you look, you've got these, um, the, these, this turning of the intellectual tide. And then you've got a, a major event like COVID, which then crystallizes that. The only way you can deal with communitarian, with, with, with COVID is through a degree of communitarian caring for each other. Um, and that combination, um, the, the intellectual turning of the tide and, um, the, um, and the, the shock to the system that illustrates and exemplifies the problems identified by the change of the intellectual tide that's what Putnam claims actually turned things in 1900. And so I think there's a very good reason to think that we're at another of these inflection points. In the end, um, intellectual ideas do matter. As Keynes said, um, practical men who think they're just being smart, in the end, they're the slaves of some dead economist. You know? um, hopefully they'll become uh, not the slaves, but the followers of some living economists. I wonder who that might be. <laughs> um, I think this is going to have to be our last uh, question. Um, and it sort of relates to what you were talking about turning intellectual tides. So Simon Lofthouse wants to ask about the role of the media. Um, and I think that's probably a sort of an institution that you that needs to be morally load bearing as well. What, what kind of role do you think the media plays in perceptions of societies? That's a, that's a very good question. It's a very good question indeed to, to end with because um, in the book I do lay an emphasis on um, the importance of what we now I suppose call influences. The people who actually 
communicate and set a lot of the ideas that influence uh, people. And um, those people, the communicators, the journalists, the influencers, very often behave extraordinarily irresponsibly um, because they've sort of developed a, as it were, a business model in which um, outrage um, uh, gains attention. Um, and you see this both on the far right and on the far left, um, uh, most especially in America, but also I believe in, in British journalism. Um, the, the, the exaggerated vilification of the other side, the denigration of others, the cancel color culture and that sort of thing. And that is a shocking thing. Just as families and firms need to be morally load-bearing, the profession that is the communicators needs to be morally load-bearing. Um, and we should really uh, put pressure on it to be like that. Okay, and then just to sort of wrap up, one final question from me. Um, how optimistic do you feel about the future of capitalism? Uh, I know, I, because I've been working on Africa for uh, 50 years and it's a roller coaster, um, I kind of try and not do optimism, pessimism. What I try and do is realism. Um, and so, um, some, you know, if, if you'd asked me five years ago, I was actually pretty glum. I thought our societies were really heading off a, over a cliff. They were sleepwalking complacently into the sort of polarizations that we then saw. I'm now very much more hopeful, um, not because it's nice to be happy talk, um, but because there really is this intellectual turning of the tide very deep now, I think unstoppable. Um, and I think those ideas coupled with this uh, remarkable shock COVID, which kind of illustrates all the issues. Um, I think that really is the inflection point. Um, inflection point is Putnam's concept and we're at one now, um, not before time. Um, please be part of it. Um, well, I think that's about all we have time for, but thank you so much for your time, Paul Collier. Um, thank you to everyone for watching, and sorry if I didn't get around to your questions. Um, the Future of Capitalism, available in all good bookshops when they reopen, and I suppose online before then. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to the CapEx daily email and the podcast as well. Um, and thank you very much, everyone very much for joining me. Thank you very much indeed for having me on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.